Welcome to season two of Women of the Hour. I am so thrilled to be back. A few changes this season. We'll be making twice as many episodes, which is super exciting, at least for me and my mother. Um, It's also why you'll hear ads. Can you pay your bills, Destiny's Child once asked. Well, now we can, thanks to some companies I actually like whose products have actually mattered to me, like MailChimp. MailChimp has been a pretty excellent force in my life, since we absolutely could not have started Lenny Letter or done this second season without them. Over 14 million businesses use MailChimp to send their email newsletters, and for good reason. It is easy and intuitive and makes you feel quite capable. Okay, hit it, DJ. I've had so much more than a good time It's meant so much more to me But I don't know if I'll ever fit inside Who you want me to be Our theme today is trapped. Being trapped, literally or metaphorically, and what it does to our psyches. We'll hear from people who have been incarcerated in the American prison system, a woman who was kidnapped by North Korean soldiers, and a set of twins who busted open boundaries that others had created for them. But first, the terrifying and hilarious tale of being literally trapped in an elevator. I'm Patricia Marks, and the reason I'm late is that I got stuck on an elevator coming here. Which is funny, because that's what my story is about. First... I'd like to utter a statement which is the sentence most likely to get you killed at a a dinner party in New York. Actually, it's the second most, but let me tell you this sentence first. I lived for 15 years rent-free in a mansion off Fifth Avenue. If you're still listening, I would say the sentence most likely to get you killed would be, I've seen Hamilton so many times that I could now understudy for um, Jefferson which is also true for me, but that's not what this is about. So, I'm living in this mansion. Poor me. I'm the house sitter. Uh, The house is completely empty. It does have a garden, which, because I'm not a nature person, I, in 15 years, never walked into. There was allegedly a pizza oven there because the owners had a chauffeur but no limousine yet. So they didn't have anything for the chauffeur to do. So they had him build a pizza oven in the garden, even though nobody ever went into the garden. So I'm living on the fifth floor, and I get in the elevator, and I hear drip, 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 drip. It's more like the Hoover Dam, but whoosh, 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 whoosh. And it sounds like it's coming from the basement. So I press the basement button, and the elevator goes... A few inches below the basement, there's a loud tone, and water starts gushing up. And it's going really, really fast up my leg. And it's not just water. It's coming from the elevator shaft, so it has cigarette butts and cockroaches in it. So there I was, trapped in the elevator, with the water rising, about to die, and not feeling all that bad about it. Well, I clearly didn't have a deadline, because I would have thought, at least I don't have to write that piece. I wasn't terrified, really. I was just really surprised. And I write comedy. I love surprises. I just thought, I can't believe, of all the ways I worried I was going to die, that this is it. One of the disadvantages of dying is that I won't be able to tell a joke about it. 
I call the police, and they start to put, like, is there an assailant with you in the elevator? No. I'm also already thinking it doesn't even matter because they have to find my house. They have to crash into the door and knock it down, find the elevator, figure out how to get it open. So I'm dead anyway. But by this time, the water had leveled off to the top of my thighs. And here's what kind of a person I am. The first thing I thought was, I can't believe I wore these shoes. They were Emma Hope shoes. They were very, very nice. And I call my friend who has keys to my um, house. And he comes over, and he's a, mm, how do I say it, a wuss, really, because he won't even go down to the basement. He said, well, why don't you climb up and go through, you know, there's a detachable ceiling in an elevator. So I did that, and I shimmied up to the first floor, tried to get the door open, but I hadn't at that point seen Die Hard, so I didn't know that there's this kind of latch that you have to press and get the door open, because for understandable reasons, a door doesn't open unless the elevator's there. So I go down into the muck, the police come, they can't get me out. Now I'm even bored. Then the emergency squad comes, and you hear them saying things like, the elevator's stuck. It won't open. Well, okay, yeah, we know that. And then they they got me out. And that's really the end of the story. I could tell you about four or five other elevator stories, the um, last one being 20 minutes ago. I think the lesson is never take an elevator if I'm on it. Thank you to my favorite humorist, Patricia Marks, for that story, and the strong lesson will be sure to follow. In 1991, Kim Dadu was 24 and living in Rochester, New York, where she worked as a counselor with the severely disabled. After years of abuse, Kim shot her boyfriend with his own gun as he tried to strangle her. Kim, who's now 50, spent 17 years behind bars for manslaughter. Early on, Kim met Annie Bell Brown, known as Belle, another inmate who would become an essential force in her life. This one girl walked me over to a table where there were some people playing cards, playing spades. And um, the girl introduced us. Kim, this is Belle. Belle, this is Kim. And Belle did a double take at me. And she said, you're a cutie. And I remember just rolling my eyes like, this is the last thing that I need right now is someone telling me I'm cute. I just found, got found guilty of man one. I'm going to prison for a long time. My life is over. And here's this woman saying, you're a cutie. I wasn't gay. I, I was never with a woman before. I never really thought about it much. I didn't see myself with anyone else ever again in my life. And I was okay with that. And from then on, we were inseparable until I got sent upstate, not even two months later, and we were separated for 17 years. I seen her when she came through Bedford on her way to Albion. She had less time than me, so she didn't stay long in Bedford. Then when I went to Albion, we tried to have some sort of relationship, but it wasn't the same upstate. There was, there was too, 
too many politics involved. They frown on lesbian relationships. You, you know, um, officers give you a hard time, give her a hard time. We both got in trouble for being in a relationship together. Um, I had a little tiny pinky ring with a K on it. And I let her wear my ring and we both got written up. Somebody told on us and we got written up and I lost rec for two weeks and she lost commissary for two weeks. And and so we always said to each other, you know, when I come home, we'll go out to dinner and see what happens. There was a commonness between us and, and I don't know, I, I fell in love with her and she fell in love with me. She came home way before me and she got off parole. She came to visit me for years, every other weekend. She was there visiting me, bringing me stuff I needed, holding my hand, crying with me, laughing with me, buying stuff out of the vending machine that she'd think I like before I even got to the visiting room. Just trying to be normal together for a little while in a visiting room. You know, there was a time I told her, there was a time I didn't think that I was good enough for her because I had so much time to do and I had so many issues in my life. And so I told her on a visit one time I said, go find somebody. Go find somebody who can love you like you need to be loved. I'm in here for what felt like forever. And I, you know, I, I pushed her away and I said, just go. I can't do this anymore. I feel like you're putting your life on hold for me. And she was mad. <laughs> and she said, all right, fine. I'll go find somebody. She said, but if I don't find anybody better than you, I'll be back. And two weeks later, she came back. And when I walked in the visiting room, she hugged me. And she said, see, there's nobody better than you. And we just planned a future together. We planned that I would come home and we would be happy and we would be able to be together like we always dreamed. And no officer could say, move apart. Don't touch each other. You're sitting too close. Thinking about her every single day, every single night, thoughts of her got me to sleep. I would just think about what we would do, how we would be in a grocery store, driving in a car together, holding hands in a car. I imagine just life together, simple things that we just weren't allowed to do in prison like normal people. And it was simply her that got me through it all. And here we are 24 years later and we were just married in July. I felt more beautiful than I ever have a day in my life. And she looked more handsome than I've ever seen her look. And we laughed and we cried and we celebrated. And it was like, finally, after all these years, after everything we've been through, 
So now there's nothing keeping us apart. I married the love of my life. Today, Kim Dadu is seven years out of jail and an advocate for New York's Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. Thank you to Kim and Natalie Patello, who produced this story. Being trapped can take many forms. For instance, I was once trapped, or thought I was trapped, in a relationship. His bedroom had no windows, and at first I found this appealing. It's like we're on a boat, I muttered drunkenly as we tumbled into what I thought would be a one-night stand. I didn't know when he laid me across the bed that there I'd stay for the next six months, leaving only for sustenance and short work trips. Every time I left, I was uneasy and afraid, the light hitting my eyes like I'd been stuck in the room from room for years on end. I asked him to take a Polaroid of me after sex, just to prove I'd been young and rosy once, and it came out as shadowy as the space we were living in. It became clear to me how ill-matched we were on the first night we tried to stay anywhere else. In our Midtown hotel, with all that space, with a window to tell us when it was morning, we didn't know what to do with ourselves. He got mean, I got sad, It turned out we were only connected by our bodies, forced together by his double bed wedged against a wall he'd sponge-painted red. After our first few sleepovers at his place, he'd started asking me to take the side against the wall, and often I'd wake up sweaty and disoriented, wedged against the plaster. This isn't working, I said. We can fix it, he said. Back in the room, the light above his desk glowing warmly, it seemed like we could. Over the next five months, we stopped and started, wept and slept, and I would awake with a gasp at 5 a.m. and listen to his breathing until 8 when I'd tiptoe into the living room to water his tiny plants. I felt paralyzed. What if I leave and he won't let me back in, or his apartment just disappears like Brigadoon, a space and time you can't exit and enter but just have to exist in? He looked so lovely when he slept. One autumn night, I left him to meet my mother for a late train upstate. She took in my ragged hair, dark circles, dry mouth. What's happening to you? I explained. She said it's hard to give up on someone you still care about, but not everything is meant to last forever. I knew she was right, and as she closed her eyes against the leatherette of the Metro North seat, I opened a magazine to distract myself. But distracted I was not, because the cover piece, entitled All the Single Ladies, was a beautiful but very doomsdayish explanation of why women who don't settle may spend the rest of their lives alone. I looked out the window at the dark wreckage of the Harlem Wingdale Mental Hospital and imagined being strapped to a gurney, driven insane by eternal singledom, my vagina as antique as the electroshock equipment they would surely use on me. The next morning, I cut my trip short to get back to the room. Our relationship culminated on New Year's Day. I don't like saying this on the radio at all, it actually makes me want to be dead, but he told me I had weird breath. I never eat anymore, I said, or drink water. I think it's like crying breath. I think it's the breath I have when I'm here. I stood by the door for what felt like hours, begging and pleading to be released as if it was nailed shut. In reality, he only had a shiny, cheap doorknob. When it was already dark, we decided to get in his car and drive to a friend's house by the beach. I couldn't think anymore in the red room. I couldn't even think by the window or out on the fire escape with the plants he had cast out when they began to shed their leaves. I'd have space at the beach to think and to be rational. At midnight, I watched him, confetti flying as he laughed oddly at a stranger's joke, and I knew we needed to be separate forever. The next morning, we walked down to the beach in our parkas. He kicked at stones, as I said, with shaky finality that I had come to a conclusion. 
But before I could get the words out, another partygoer came ambling down the dunes towards us. Dude, I'm so sorry, I backed into your car. My life flashed before my eyes. How bad was the damage? Would I ever get home? The rest of the guests planned to stay for a few more days, enjoy some quiet time with their children and partners. There was no train, only a bus three towns over. I imagined calling my father, who was already angry that I'd essentially disappeared for half a year, and begging him to come get me. I didn't give a shit what happened to the guy. He could swim home for all I cared. I sat down on a petrified stump, head between knees and the international sign for panic attack. The damage turned out to be minimal, and we drove back in relative silence. You're coming home with me, he asked as we approached the city. I was crying behind my sunglasses, wiping the tears away before they passed below the rims. Um, I just have to get some stuff together at my parents' place, so I'll be over later. He dropped me in Union Square, quiet on New Year's Day, and I lingered at the car door, clinging to my backpack. You okay, he asked. Yeah, yeah, I am. I kissed him, knowing it would be the last time. Back at my parents' kitchen counter, I surveilled the space, empty and white, just the way they liked it, and tried to imagine something new for myself. I'd never believed I would have choices in love, that I deserved them, or that girls like me, awkward, begging girls, ever got them. But there would be choices and windows, and I would never sleep against the wall again. My name is Laura Ling, and I am a journalist. In March of 2009, I was working on a story about the trafficking of North Korean women from North Korea into China. And it was during that time when I was reporting along the border between those two countries that I was captured by North Korean soldiers, taken into North Korea, and held there for nearly five months. The day that I was captured, my team and I, we were filming along the frozen Tumen River, and this is the river that separates China and North Korea. And at the time, the river was frozen, and so we stepped foot onto that ice. At one point, we heard yelling. That's when we saw North Korean soldiers, and they were running toward us, and so we just ran as fast as we could. We were able to make it back onto Chinese soil, but the two soldiers were able to apprehend my colleague, Yuna, and me. We were dragged across that ice into North Korea. I was bruised up, bloodied, actually knocked out unconscious on that ice and taken into North Korea. My first thought was about my family, and my biggest fear was for my family. I missed my husband. Just before I left for this trip to Asia, we had just decided to try to start to have a family. And I thought to myself, I'll never get to have a child. I'll never get to have a family with my husband. While our capture was violent and brutal. Once they had us in North Korea, we immediately became political pawns. And from that moment on, we were treated humanely. But there was always this fear in the back of my mind that anything could happen because of that. 
initial brutality on that river. I thought that I could be there for a very, very long time. And I started thinking about who might be a good partner for my husband. And I was thinking about people that I knew because I was just really worried about him and didn't want him to, to be alone. I thought about my parents, how they're aging, and wondered if this situation was just causing them to age even more. That broke my heart. I was able to receive letters from them every now and again, and I think that was the biggest comfort to me during that time. I read and reread them over and over. I memorized every single word. I kept a journal, but I was always careful about what I wrote in the journal because I didn't want to write anything that could be used against me. And so the journal just became really a a series of poems and love letters to my husband. What I wrote in that journal has always just been kept between the two of us. One morning, I was told that an important envoy had just touched down in Pyongyang and that if things went well with his visit with then-North Korean leader Kim Jong-il, we might get to go home. And if things didn't go well, we would not get to go home. It was actually happening during one of the lowest times in my captivity. I was very, very sick. I'd been hooked up to an IV. And things actually moved pretty quickly from that moment on. It was very surreal. We were taken to a hotel and then we saw President Clinton and it really did feel like this out-of-body experience that there standing before me was the former president of the United States of America. And I remember saying when I got on the plane, I, I feel freedom. And they said, one of them said, well, we're not out of North Korean airspace yet, so let's just hold that thought. (laughs) I saw my husband and my family at Burbank Airport when the plane landed. You know, it was such an amazing feeling, one of the best moments of my life to be reunited with my family. But I could see when I looked in my parents' eyes, my mom and dad, that they had aged quite a bit, and that really broke my heart. It's funny because I love all different types of exotic food, and Asian food especially, but when I came home, all I wanted was a slice of pizza. And that was, that was um, the first thing I had for dinner, and it tasted amazing. Even just being able to go outside for a few minutes in the day was a treasure for me, to be able to breathe the fresh air, to look up at the sky. I did not see stars um, for nearly five months, and I remember when I first saw stars in the sky um, and how profound that was to me. Music. I didn't realize when I got home how much I missed music. And I remember that I was in the car and the first song that came on was, it was Depeche Mode. I think it was um, People Are People. Hearing Depeche Mode on the radio brought me to tears. And I think it's just because I missed music so much. My husband and I were fortunate to have a baby girl. I think if you do the math, we probably conceived the day I got home. Her name is Lee Jefferson, Lee after my sister Lisa, and Jefferson after William Jefferson Clinton. So she's six years old, and we have a a two-and-a-half-year-old son. My captivity, I guess, could be viewed as an extreme situation, but I think that people in our daily lives, we feel trapped in all sorts of ways. 
And in my situation, I feel like it was the darkest, scariest, most challenging time of my life. But I also discovered strengths within myself that I never knew existed. That was Laura Ling. Go watch her Seeker.com series Rituals, which I'll be lucky enough to appear on soon. So we are here at Women of the Hour with my beloved friend, Ashley C. Ford. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ashley. Ashley was the star of our first season's friendship episode, in which we uh, told the story of our meeting as pen pals. Mm -hmm. The way that I was introduced to Ashley's work was through an essay she wrote about the fact of her father having been incarcerated since she was young. And so, Ash, I was hoping you could start by just sharing with us the timeline of um, your father's incarceration. My dad went to prison when I was around six months old, so in 1987, and has been in prison my whole life. He has moved prisons at different times. Um, it's weird because, like, he'll write us and or write me and tell me that he's moved prisons, and it's like that kind of just doesn't mean anything to me because it, it, he's always in prison, you know, so it doesn't matter, you know, that he's moved to a different one. It just matters that he's still away. And he's in prison for sexual assault, and... I've seen him in person that I can remember about three times. And he's also written me letters my whole life full of really amazing things, telling me how much he loves me and cares about me and thinks I'm the best and the smartest and all those things. Basically been just like a huge ego booster in his letters. And, you know, it's nice. I never really had to question whether or not my dad loves me. And I think a lot of kids with incarcerated parents, um, especially incarcerated dads, don't necessarily get the same opportunity. You have like an incredible capacity for forgiveness. That's something you know about you, whether it's like someone being sassy to you on Twitter. You're always able to look at both sides. And I wondered growing up what your family's relationship was like to your father, whether you felt like you were getting a negative portrayal back from your family and your community about your dad. My mother is never ever in my life spoken a word against my father, ever. She has never said a bad thing about him. And even as I've gotten older and my family has gotten more willing to have conversations with me about my dad, the conversations are usually this. We're confused. Everybody was confused because your dad was the most like laid back, sweet funny like everybody you know like they were like your dad was scared of butterflies literally like butterflies would be and he would like be like, I'm just gonna go in the house because there were like a bunch <laughs> of butterflies outside like he was the most gentle guy in the world and he was so gentle with your mother and he was so gentle with you you know and my mom always says you know she was so young and she didn't realize how well loved she was until my dad was gone and that no one has ever loved her that well since then, um, romantically. So everything I know about my dad from my family is just at odds with the action that he took. And that, you know, like, and it's not, there's no question. He did it. And he'll, he admits to doing it. He admits it. to doing it. Like that is not 
a question. But my family had no experience of him in that way. So I think when you talk about like at odds, like that's what eventually became at odds was that like this was the man my family knew who then they didn't talk to me about until I was in my teens and then really not much then. Um, And then the world just saw that I was the child of an incarcerated man and not just an incarcerated man. I was the child of a man who was a rapist. So what does that say about me? Can you tell me about meeting your father and about how what those experiences were like and sort of how they changed as you got older? When I was a little, little kid, I just remember seeing him and having him always be just like almost obsessively staring at us, like me and my brother, and how my aunt, I think when I was younger, when I was very young, I went with my aunt and my dad's sister. She, I remember telling me, her telling me that she was so excited for me to go see my dad and that, you know, I like how much I looked like him and that I just looked like him with pigtails, you know, like at the time I remember that. And I remember being a kid and like going through the process and being driven there and having to be patted down and, you know, all of the things that could go wrong along the way and hoping that nothing went wrong. And my dad, you know, seeing him and hugging him and telling him that I loved him and how he just wanted us to tell him everything. You know, I was, I think, eight. And I remember sitting there and him asking me about school, asking me about friends, asking me about what I like to watch on TV. Like he just wanted to know everything about me um, and about my brother. And then we went back again when I was um, 12 and my brother was 11. And that was a really interesting trip. That was the most interesting trip for me because that was the trip that my dad, um, it became very, very clear to me that my dad started to want us to know why he was in prison. And he was starting to feel kind of like we were getting to a point where it was worse that the family was keeping it from us and that we should probably start preparing ourselves. Why do you think he wanted you to know? Because he thought it was inevitable you'd find out or because he wanted to show you the regret that he had or? I think both. I think he, I think he understood that we were going to find out one way or the other and he would like it to be during a time where he could still like talk to us and hopefully we wouldn't cut him out of our lives. Um, And I also think that he was beginning to think, you know, someone else is going to tell them. Like, it's only a matter of time before somebody who doesn't care about them tells them what happened. So he would much rather someone who cared about us told us. So there was that. And then I saw him again when I was 25. And that was when I went on my own. And... That was just intense. That was really intense. You asked him some harder questions then, didn't you? I did. I asked him to explain to me why he did what he did and where that came from. And it was a hard question to ask. You only have so much time when you go see them. Um, And 
think about all the people in your life right now who maybe you have a little bit of a problem with and you're just kind of like, I don't even want to, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, we're not even going to start this not shit. Not even going to start it. Not even going to go there. And then like imagine that this is someone who is your parent who you haven't seen in 12 years and who you don't know who when you're going to ever get to see them again. And you want to take the three hours that you guys have together. You want to spend part of that talking about why they're, I mean, like it's, it was hard for me to really figure out if it was relevant. Like it was relevant, but it was also like, I have three hours. Is it relevant enough? Did he seem open and receptive to answering that question for you? Yeah, absolutely. My dad has always in his letters made it very clear that when we had questions and when we wanted to talk, there was nothing that he wouldn't talk to us about. There was nothing that he wouldn't explain. And he felt truly like that was the one thing he could give us. He felt like in so many ways he had, you know, not ruined, but definitely altered the course of our lives, my brother and I. And he would never be able to pay that back because time is the most valuable thing in the world. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. <laughs> it's like it's the you, one thing that it's you the really can. It's the one thing. And it's, it, I mean, so, and he got that. And so the thing that he could offer us was honesty, you know, like that's what he could give us that only he could give us was Did honesty. Did you ever tell your father that you were a survivor yourself? Or? No. 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 Did you almost feel like it would be too heartbreaking for him? Or was it something that just didn't feel safe to share? I wanted to tell him very badly. I wanted to tell him. But I was and am afraid of how that would make him feel about himself, which is, I know, not the wokest shit in the world <laughs> and probably not something um, that I should concern myself with, but I also can't not concern myself with it. I think probably his wish would be that that was something I had been spared in this life. You know what I mean? Like without him um, in it. And I just know what a disappointment it'll be when I have to tell him that that's not really a wish of his. That is reality. (laughs) I mean, you're writing a book and your book is about... I mean, your book involves your father, but it's also, I love you, by the way. I love you, too. It's about your girlhood, and there's n- and you're unsparing in the way that you write. And so, mm-hmm. and I would assume, based on who your father is, that when your book is out, he's going to want to read every page of it. Oh, absolutely. Like, that doesn't, I mean, there's no doubt. And, you know, part of that is his, you know, love, deep love for me and wanting to support me in whatever way he can. And another part of it is just like, you know, for him, the book really will be this opportunity to 
get into my brain in ways that he's never been able to just based on proximity. (laughs) And at a certain point, I remember, I mean, you and I were close before you moved to New York and you moved to New York and you started this beautiful life with your partner, Kelly, with your, you built a beautiful home for yourself, a beautiful life for yourself. And writing back to your dad became less of a priority for you. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that you needed space? Did you feel you needed to define your own identity? I, I would say both of those are true, that I, I both needed space and I needed to define my identity. When I was living in Indianapolis and I was around 27, 26 years old, probably 26, it hit me that part of the reason I had stayed in Indiana for so long was because I was waiting for my dad to come home. And when I really thought about it, um, I realized, first of all, that I didn't actually have any idea when he was going to be released or if he was going to be released. And it wasn't something I was doing purposefully, but I eventually realized that I put my life on hold in a certain way in preparation for his return. Now it's been more than two years since you moved to New York. Yes. Which is amazing. You moved, as I told people last year, you moved here with a torn ACL and used your crutches up and down the subway stairs. And I think that makes you qualified to be president. (laughs) (laughs) And you're in a job that you love. You're you have a beautiful home with Kelly. You guys are living your dream sans roommates. Mm -hmm. And I got a text from you, I guess, a week and a half ago that just said my dad's being released on November 22nd. Mm -hmm. And because I know you and because I love you and know what that means, I remember just feeling like shivers down my body, not of fear, but just knowing what a shift that would be for you. Yeah. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? Do you, do you have a plan? My mom called and told me that he was going to be released. And she also told me that when his family asked what he wanted, you know, like, what do you like? Okay, you're going to get out. What do you want? Do you want to come here? Do you want to go do this? Like, what are we, like, do you have to tell us what you want? And he just said, I just want my kids, you know, like, and which is consistent with how my dad has been my whole life. Um, I guess immediately I thought, I've got to buy a plane ticket. Like, I've got to go home. I've got to be there when he comes back or I have to be there when he's let out. I just have to be there. And then I got really sad because I think as soon as I realized he was being released, it just it just hit me how much time we've lost. We've lost so much time and there's no version of life where you can make up for that kind of time. It's just gone. And that hurt. And I I think I kind of had to reckon with that. I had to deal with that. And then I got scared. You know, I got, (laughs) I got really scared, you know, about what is this going to be like for him? He went into prison in, I believe, the winter of 1987. And now he's going to be released in the winter of 2016. (laughs) A lot of shit is different. My dad's not going to know how to use a fucking iPhone. It's like being like trapped in a time capsule. Yeah. 
you know, my dad has been very much awake, you know, like my dad, while he's been in prison, he's gotten two degrees, you know, he's been a mentor for other young men who are in prison, like encouraging them, like not to get involved in gang activity and stuff like that. And like helping them, you know, find out how to navigate, you know, these halls and stuff and like, and be okay when you get out as okay as you possibly can be, you know, but he's still been in prison for 30 years. And so, you know, I I, I think I worry about mostly what his life is going to look like. My dad has always been so optimistic about the kind of life he could have post-prison. And there is definitely part of me that's like, who's going to tell him? Like, who's going to tell him that, like, it's not going to be easy, you know, for more reasons than one. It's not going to be easy because you don't know anything about technology, you know, now. Like, you just don't. And it's also not going to be easy because, you know, you've been in prison. You're a felon. And it's definitely not going to be easy when people know what you've been in prison for, you know. And it doesn't matter that it was 30 years ago for a lot of people. That's not going to mean anything. And should it? I don't know. Like, that's a thing, you know? Should it matter? So I'm worried for him and about him. I'm worried for me and about me and my brother and my mom. That's what I want to know. I was like, do you feel safe? I mean, do you feel safe? I know you don't feel like your dad's going to harm you. but oh, no. But you... Was there any part of you that felt safer with with a distance there? I think my heart felt safer. My dad's still a human. Like, he's a, a human being and he's a human man. And there is part of me that understands that when he was communicating with me via letter, you know, that, of course, he was going to write all these wonderful, beautiful, amazing things to me, you know, but now he's going to have to get to know me. And there are things about me he might not like. You know, my dad's a religious guy. I am not a religious woman. You know, like not even a You've little. You have a lot of qualifications, and that's not one of them. <laughs> that but you is did not, take me to church. I did take you to church in Harlem. And that you knew was the songs. super fun. Well, I mean, it's cultural. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a cultural Southern Baptist. I'm not, I'm not a practicing Southern Baptist. So it's, you know, I worry about stuff like that. Like I worry about his ability to accept me as I am and how heartbreaking it would be if he couldn't. I'm queer. I'm... Yeah in a relationship with a white dude named Kelly Stacy, but I'm <laughs> queer. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I, I think it's just like there's a lot at stake. What if you could paint an ideal situation? Like, what are your hopes for your relationship with your father? Like, how would you want it to look for the rest of your two lives? I would want to have an open and honest relationship with him about who the both of us are and what the both of us want and how the both of us need to be loved by the other person and how much we're capable of loving and doing for the other person. I do worry that like my dad might want something from me that I can't give him. I think I worry about that a lot. I love Indiana, I'm not moving back. You know, Do you think you and whatever. Kelly will be in Indiana waiting for him when he gets out? Kel and I have talked about it. And what I basically told him was, you know, 
a lot of this in the beginning I need to do with my dad on my own. And obviously you will eventually be in the picture because you're my partner in love and life and, you know, everything. So there's no version (laughs) of him fully being fully integrated into my life and that not having Kelly in it, you know, like that that's not happening. But I think, you know, the holidays are coming and there are things like this is this is going to be the first Christmas I get to spend with my dad. Yeah. And I love my boyfriend and he is my partner in life. And, you know, I'm going to marry the fuck out of him. But <laughs> at the same time, I just really want to be with my daddy. Yeah. And I want it to sort of just be something that I never got to have. You know, I never got to wake up on like a Christmas morning and my dad was there. Um, and then my birthdays right after that. I've never spent a birthday with my dad. And it's overwhelming. You know, emotionally, it's the idea that those things are going to happen. Um, it kills me a little, you know, because it is both the sweetest thing and it is bitter. Because I've had like 30 Christmases and like 30 birthdays. So to just get to spend one of each with your parent, you know, a parent who loves you and wants to be around but can't, you know, because of decisions he made, um, it's tough. But I, 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 I need that. And Kel's not going anywhere. No, he's He'll not. He'll be around. He's obsessed with you. He is. He is. And I, I love it. Ashley Ford, as always, most open, beautiful, remarkable, <laughs> strong, sensual woman. 100% sensual. <laughs> Thank you, Ash. Thanks, B. I love you. I love you so much. You can read Ashley's work and find out more about her upcoming book at ashleyc4.net. This season's Women of the Hour advice giver in residence is the wise and warm Tessa Thompson, a friend whose kind but sharp sense of humor and justice means the world to me. She will join us every week to answer life's most burning questions. If it sounds like she's far away, it's because she was. She Skyped us while on location for a movie in Australia, where she's the first woman of color to embody a Marvel superhero on screen. Yep, she's kind of a big deal. This week's question... Am I trapped by what I feel is familiar? Should I leave the job that I kind of like to provide security and go for a dream one far away from everything and everyone I know and love? Or, since I'm just out of college and lucky to have a job in my actual field, should I stay and try and build a life while I have this actual job before me? That's interesting. (laughs) I've thought a lot about that because I now have a job that, in some ways gives me tremendous freedom because, for example, it requires me to travel lots of new places. But in other ways, it sort of keeps me captive in a sense where it makes it so that certain relationships become hard. I'm away from my friends and family, and so sometimes I feel sort of trapped by that. Um, I think I used to have this perspective of freedom where freedom meant that you weren't beholden to anything and no one had any expectations 
of you. And I used to, before I had a career, for example, I would just travel. Like I imagined myself as just like this world traveler that that's all I did with my life. And any job I would have would just be to get enough money so that I could go on my next adventure. And maybe it's a function of age, but I feel like the older that I get, captivity feels different to me in the sense where being expected by somebody and having expectations on you is actually something that feels really good and safe and grounding. The idea of being without that, it feels like a ship without rudders. And so I guess what I've acknowledged in that is that you can change throughout various periods in your life. And so I think you just have to really ask yourself, like, what do you feel outside of anybody's expectations? What what do you want at this point in your life? And then acknowledge that at another point in your life, you might feel totally different. But I think really living now for what you feel and want now is a really important thing to try to do in life in general, because it's just like, it's the worst thing that's so true. It's really, really short. Thanks, Tessa. You're, like, very cool. (laughs) Twin sisters Alba and Anastasia Samosa, who both have cerebral palsy, have been advocating for disability rights, aka human rights, since they were little kids. And their work has taken them to some pretty cool places, like uh, the White House. Appearing on an ABC Live TV special at age nine... Anastasia asked then-President Bill Clinton why her sister wasn't allowed to learn in a normal classroom. Anastasia's bravery ultimately led to Alba becoming the first, in quotes, significantly disabled student in NYC to be integrated into a general education classroom. These are pretty incredible women. Here's Anastasia and Alba, who you'll hear through her communication device. People just didn't know how to teach uh kids with disabilities, but particularly children like Alba at the time, who is verbal, but so I don't like to say that Alba's not verbal, because she is, she just communicates in a different way. As Anastasia was already in the general education classroom, my mom saw how well she was doing, but I was falling behind dramatically. Despite all my mother's efforts to give me the tools to succeed relating to technology, nobody was interested in learning how to assist me, and there was no curriculum or teacher training to work with the different types of disabilities represented in the classroom. My name is Anastasia Somoza. I am an international disability rights advocate and I've been doing it um, really since I was nine years old uh, when we first started working to integrate ALBA into the New York City public school system. And as a a nine-year-old, I just remember thinking, I have so many friends, I want ALBA to experience that too. ALBA Somoza is the nine-year-old girl who made headlines last year after her twin sister asked President Clinton why Alba could not attend a regular school even though she has cerebral palsy. I went to the White House in February of 1993. It was actually, I remember the day, I think it was February 20th of 1993. So because she can't speak, they put her in a special class. But she uses computers to speak and I would like her to be in a regular class just like me. 
Wow. So you just want your sister to have a chance? Yes. Good for you. So immediately after that meeting, President Clinton and Hillary wrote us a le- wrote me a letter saying that they had asked someone in his administration to look into my sister's school situation, and that person ended up being the Assistant Secretary of Special Education at the time, Judy Human. So he that was his first letter, and then he and I became pen pals, and then by the next September, she was integrated. It was very exciting, and a little scary. My mom had asked to come in to speak to the other 36 children in the classroom to tell them about my disability, and they really did not want her to do that. In the end, they allowed her in for half an hour, and it was amazing. The kids were great, and asked all sorts of questions, even the teachers had questions. I also remember feeling incredibly happy about my new classmates. It ended up being a great day. For the first uh, little little while, it was great. You know, the focus was all on, you know, the social interaction that Alba was getting and just the excitement around her, the initial integration into the mainstream classroom, and then. As it moved forward, my mom obviously realized, and the school as well, that Alba was going to require further support in the classroom. 26 years after the Americans with Disabilities Act, most of us still don't have the opportunity to live independently in our communities. Uh, A lot of us don't have the opportunity still to um, have access to a free, appropriate public education. Disability is an inherent part of the human experience. I think about my disability, I guess, but it doesn't come up as much as you would think. Obviously, there, I get frustrated sometimes when I say, if only I could run across the street or just run up those stairs. There are moments in my everyday life where it does, where my lack of physical ability and the actual disability does suddenly appear at the front of my mind. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I never get that I never think about it or I never get angry that I can't do what somebody else can do so easily um, because I do a lot. It is really hard for me to sit in my wheelchair every day. I wish I had more freedom to do as I please. To be able to talk, for example. With the help of technology, I can talk. But there are still many parts of my life that I do not control and have to depend on others for help. Some of the things I wish I could wish them away. Um, But you have a choice every day, I think, as an individual to get up and say you're going to have a good day or not have a good day. I think to a certain degree we do have control. I'm 32 now and 
I think I can finally say that I'm fully comfortable in my own body. I paint at a studio every week downtown called Pure Vision Arts, which is a studio for artists with developmental disabilities. There, I have been given the freedom to express myself through the art I create. I love to make abstract art and I have several techniques that sometimes requires the help of my assistant. I do a lot of hands-on work, like blending colors together with my hands to create colorful backgrounds. We need to continue to have these conversations in every industry, about every industry, and give people like me the opportunities to, to, to do what we want to do because we're ready, willing, and able, just like everyone else. You can find out more about Anastasia's work with disability rights at AnastasiaSamoza.com. To see Alba's artwork and where she's teaching next, check out AlbaSamoza.com. This podcast was produced by Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. Specifically, a whole bunch of broads named Jenna Weiss-Berman, Liz Watson, Emily Becker, Barry Finkel, Gabrielle Lewis. All women producers. Special thanks to Henry Malofsky, Max Linsky, Ben Cooley, Jessica Gross, and the stars for guiding us. Our music is by Andrew Dost. What a tall drink of water. Thanks, as always, to MailChimp for sponsoring the show. Remember, this episode was brought to you by TBS's original comedy, Search Party, which you can watch on TBS or TBS On Demand. Thank you for listening to our first episode. We'll be back with a bonus ASAP. <laughs>